0: Use my name,
1: the street, the street talk, motherfucker.
0: My name is my name. This is my name, my name is, is my name, an anomalous humanity podcast, podcast with APS. APS. You're listening to the third episode of My Name Is My Name with APS. On today's show, I'll be talking to Peter Steves of DePaul University. Welcome back to the podcast. I just got done having a discussion with uh, Peter Wolfendale on accelerationism, universalism, and uh, Afro-pessimism. I I think as far as these things go, it was a pretty good discussion, though I think we both probably felt that the other one wasn't hearing what we were saying. But if you'd like to watch that discussion as it took place on Google Hangout, uh, you should Google fixing the future and you'll see a link there for it. I think the reaction to the Dan Barber episode was very positive, and I'm quite happy with that. Though maybe a moratorium for a little while on talking about accelerationism on this podcast. The conversation you're about to hear between me and Peter Steves took place while I was in Chicago for a symposium held there on my recent book, uh, A Non-Philosophical Theory of Nature. Over the next few weeks you will hear discussions I had with other people based in Chicago like Adam Kotzko, Liam Henehan, and Christine Skolnick. I have to apologize in advance, uh, you know, that I am new to this, and we ran into some technical problems while I was out there, mostly to do with my dying laptop. But that's all fixed now, so I think going forward we should be able to have some clean audio when I'm discussing in person with folks. Okay, so in my discussion today with Peter Steves, who, as I said at the top of the show, is from DePaul University, he's actually the director of the Humanities Center there. We talk about his journey into philosophy, we talk about how he started off studying the sciences, and we talk a little bit about his political work. As always, I encourage you to leave comments on the Tumblr site. I am very interested in your suggestions for people that I should be interviewing. And please keep in mind that I need your help to make sure that this is not another white male academic zone only. Not asking you to do my research for me, but please help me out. Uh, Let me know about people you think are doing interesting work um, in feminism, in critical race theory, whatever term you want to use to describe those uh, very diverse uh, discourses. Also, coming up uh, in the middle of the week, I will be posting a little mini-episode, which will be the recording of my talk at the Derrida Today conference, as well as some reflections on the conference itself. You know, I gotta say, Derridians are uh, really nice people. It was a really pleasant conference, despite being in midtown Manhattan. But more of that to come, which is a very bad Derrida joke. All right, so without further ado, here is my discussion with Peter Steves. <laughs> well, I so had that, that, but I get like, people unfollow as well. <coughs> wow, uh, which is unfortunate. Well, it's fine. That's fine. pretty cool. Like, Twitter is uh, standing on a CTA platform and just screaming. It's it's How a weird thing. How often do you put thing. something down? Uh, in the podcast or on Twitter? And on Twitter. Oh, like I'm right now. You know, you're, <laughs> you're doing it at <laughs> the time. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I'm like always connected now. It's it's uh, it's a little disturbing. Mm-hmm. It's not good.
1: No, why not?
0: Well, because you walk into things, you know. You're <laughs> typing, and uh, right. right. No, it's actually good in a lot of ways. I stay in touch with friends in England that I I don't get to see a lot. Um, right. And and that's that's good. But when it becomes everything, that's yeah no
1: longer good. So this morning, early in the morning, as we were driving driving to the hospital, actually, um, was a Red light, and it turned green, and the woman in front of me was texting, clearly texting. Yeah. And I waited for a second because I'm not one of those guys who honks as soon as it's green. Yeah. But you know, after a good 10-15 seconds of solid green, let's give a little tap, honk, honk. Yeah. She looks up from the the what she was doing, and then gives me the finger and takes off. (laughs) That's how the morning started. (laughs) That's amazing.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Another Chicago day. Yeah. Where are you living now?
1: Uh, West Rogers Park. Okay. Which is a mixed neighborhood, I think, of yeah. in terms of economics and everything else too. Yeah. So yeah.
0: Cool. Um so we just kinda get into it. That's sort of how it works. Uh, uh, how long you been the director here at the Humanities Center now?
1: Um coming up on nine, ten months I think.
0: Nine ten months, cool. Yeah. Um and What's your, what's your vision? So you, you brought Crispin Glover, you brought um, the, the band that you were talking about. What were they called again? Hooten Hollers. Brothers Quay,
1: Sally yeah. Mann. Yeah. What is the vision? Well, I was talking to, my, actually my wife, I was asked this and I hesitated for a moment and she was there and she said, I think it's just to do things that don't suck. <laughs> and I thought, that's a great vision statement. Yes. In many ways, that is sort of what I'm trying to do. I just don't want to do things that suck, Yeah, um, which a lot of academia does. So okay, a lot of, lot of area to explore there. Yeah. <laughs>
0: now, um, you, you kind of have a, a, an interesting relationship with academia, because you are a very well-trained academic. Um, but like you just said, like there's a lot of the stuff in academia that sucks. Um, What keeps you here?
1: Um, Right now, a big thing is the Humanity Center. That having this opportunity really, hopefully, has opened up some doors to do things that are somewhat different than most things going on in academia. I think part of the problem is that, well, there are a lot of problems, but part of the problem is that we end up just talking to each other a lot. Yeah. And it's a version of the preaching to the choir problem, Mm -hmm. where you can get all excited about something. But in the end, you wonder, what is it really doing? Because the other people who are listening are the people who already thought that anyway. um, And very often, even they're not really listening, listening. So I hope that one of the things that we can do with the Humanity Center is to change that a little bit to bring in people from outside the community to bring in people from other disciplines, to bring in people that maybe had never gone to this sort of event ever before, both within the university and without, and then to try to give people an immersive an immersive experience mm. so that it's not just a talking head, mm-hmm. but it's something experiential. It's hitting them in multi-sensory ways, multimedia ways from lots of different angles so that hopefully there's something to think about when it's over. Yeah, That's the idea. Um, have you been thinking at all about the, the
0: sort of attack on, on the humanities that's been going on for... Uh, probably a decade
1: now, uh yeah. and the kind of decline of majors going into the humanities. It's hard not to, because it, it affects everybody. It affects the major, especially in philosophy, but right. it affects the, the whole college. So last year at this time, before I was the director, there was talk about having a series called Saving the Humanities, or Why the Humanities Matter. And I haven't ended up doing something like that, just because it seems so defensive. Yeah seemed like you're already admitting that there's a war and we've got it so I've tried to take other paths. Like for instance, instead of having debates about these sorts of issues, we were gonna have there were gonna be some debates scheduled and I, I scratched those and we put in conversations instead. Uh-huh. So it doesn't mean that people always agree when they're talking. Yeah. Just like you and me here, right? Yeah. We may but that's interesting, that's good. And if you talk about it and you talk about it publicly and other people can sort of eavesdrop on the conversation that hopefully that gets us someplace better. So, yeah, it's definitely something we're thinking about. Um, And also, even though it's a humanities center, I hope to bring in people from lots of different disciplines, stuff from the sciences. We were having Mm -hmm. Lee Small in here until his health made him. Oh, that's um, too bad. Yeah, he was supposed to be here in a couple of weeks, but he had an injury, so we'll have him next fall. Oh, good. good, good. More physicists, more scientists, more artists too, Uh and more people who are doing things out in the world um that hopefully we can make bridges with with academia too
0: all right let's let's go all the way back uh where are you from
1: from ohio where in ohio (laughs) (laughs) lima ohio lima ohio Lima, Ohio. Ohio. small town in the northwestern part of ohio right next to Wapakoneta, birthplace of neil armstrong (laughs) first man on the moon right okay Uh, i grew up just a couple of miles from where he was born
0: so how does a how does a boy a nice boy from Lima Ohio, begin, uh, you know, end up in Chicago with the director of the the humanities center? How did you <laughs> How did you become an actor? <laughs> that <academic>? lofty <laughs> <laughs> trajectory yeah, yeah, that yeah. I have,
1: yeah. Well, I don't know. I I grew up with there were farms on all sides of me, and the truth is, I always knew that I'd go to college, and it was just a question of what to do. So it was the sciences first that I wanted to do. I wanted to do physics, and there's no university even that's really nearby. So. So, so you said you wanted to
0: start off with the sciences? That's what you wanted to study? Yeah. What did you end up studying?
1: Physics and biology at Northwestern, the mm-hmm. integrated science program back in the mid-'80s. Um, just because, I guess the, the thing that I always wanted to do was just it would it's sort of cliché, but it's the, the big questions: so Why are we here? What does this all mean? How did it start? How's it going to end? What am I supposed to do with this? That sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. And it seemed to me naive little boy, that physics was probably going to be the answer to all these questions. So that's what I went and did. Do you, do you not think that anymore? Yeah, I don't think that anymore, anymore at all. Um, but I went through a phase then when I thought, oh, philosophy is going to be it. I don't think that anymore. Do you don't it? think anymore. No, <laughs> oh, okay. Okay.
0: So how did you get into philosophy?
1: Um, because after a little while of doing the physics, it did become clear that there were just certain questions that you're, you're not allowed to ask. Which is not a bad thing, because otherwise you wouldn't get on with the business of physics. But those were particularly the questions that I I was interested in. And then thinking more about the methodology, the assumptions behind science, it just, yeah, it was clear that this was not going to be a place where you're allowed to ask those sort of fundamental questions. So that, coupled with the fact that I felt that I had spent a lot of time doing things that were very abstract and might be in some sense selfish or self-serving because although I still believe those are the most important questions what does it all mean and how's it why is it here um, if you're just focusing on that like I intensely was you're not making a big difference in the world so there were two things I wanted to do I wanted to do something more concrete that could actually maybe actually make someone's life a little bit better and then find another path toward answering those big questions so I left sciences and i went to do peace studies mm. at manchester university in indiana okay and uh, that was your undergrad yeah this was still undergrad so i went there after i left northwestern and did peace studies and then sort of toward the end of the peace studies degree i'd just been taking a lot of philosophy and english and i decided well philosophy is going to be the thing to do i could keep the peace studies and keep trying to do mm-hmm. you know activist work and stuff like that, but philosophy might be the way into answering those big questions and also give a foundation for the ethics and politics that, that I was interested in, too. So I decided to go into graduate school in philosophy. Cool. And, w- and you went to Indiana, right? I did, uh, which is a hardcore logic program. Yeah. One of the top... I was very lucky to, to get in one of the top logic programs in the country at that time. Um, and that's what I wanted to do. Because I think it was still the sciences, you know, that yeah. was still in me thinking, well, you can... you take the boy out of the science but (laughs) and well logic seemed close to it and I thought well this is the way Uh, maybe just because it seemed the most familiar okay and you
0: had a pretty radical transformation there right you you started doing uh Husserlian
1: phenomenology I did yeah it's strange because I don't know I don't know if this is interesting at all but I the, the two big changes academically in my life were both the word you use, radical, makes a lot of sense because they were very quick, just sort of turning on a dime kind of changes that mm-hmm. I think probably to other people would have seemed very strange. So when I was at Northwestern, um, it was it was a Cartesian night for me where I just was miserable doing the things that I was doing, miserable with myself. Uh, so at, at Northwestern, that, that one night, I decided to just basically lock myself in my dorm room and not come out until I had questioned everything that I could question in terms of the direction of my life and the major assumptions in my life, which were ethical, religious, political, and, and more also just in terms of the direction I should be going. And so I just thought for 24 hours straight, didn't even eat or do anything. I just sat there and I just tried to think through what I should be doing with my life. And then the next day, I unlocked the door, and I went to the registrar's office, and I dropped out. Wow. Yeah. Um, So And then basically just disappeared uh, from that part of my life, Mm. and then went off. And then the next fall, went to Manchester University and took that different direction. And then something similar happened in grad school, too. Wasn't quite locking myself up, but it was a question of I had read some because I had taken a religious studies course, um, God forbid, in, yeah. in philosophy. And it turned out that they were doing this weird philosophy in religious studies with Husserl and Heidegger, and these sorts of people that I had not really encountered. Okay. And so the first time that I read this, I saw there are different ways of, of thinking about philosophy other than the logic. And the truth is that for the past year or so, I had started to think that the methodology of analytic philosophy and philosophy of language and logic was so similar Mm -hmm. to the scientific methodology in the world that I had come from earlier that the same sort of problems were there. Mm. Um, I was TAing actually for Raymond Smolian, who's a brilliant logician. Mm -hmm. just a brilliant man, friends with Girdle and... I looked at his
0: book on Girdle, I I couldn't read it. No. Like literally I couldn't (laughs) read it. It was written in a... Lots well, Girdle's, Girdle's interesting kind of uh, arithmetic, arith- arith- Girdle, Girdle numbering. Uh, Girdle and numbering, idea, yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Well, he's brilliant, and I, yeah, that was one of the textbooks that we used. I had a year on completeness, wow. a year on in incompleteness uh, from Raymond Smullyan. Mm-hmm. It was, yeah, fantastic. And he had a heart attack that halfway through that second semester on um, Girdle's incompleteness theorem, and Anil Gupta came and took over for him. And Gupta was just brilliant, too. I took. Mm two years, I think, of set theory with Gupta as well. And he wow. was just, I mean, just, they're just super smart guys. Um, but that being said, it was a very limited worldview. And so I was TAing for Smolian, and that meant that we did discussion sections on Fridays. So mm-hmm. I'd attend all of the lectures on Monday, Wednesday, and then on Friday, they'd break the students up into small groups, usually like 30, 35 and then you'd meet all day Friday with different groups of them, one after the other, and work one-on-one with them if you could, but still not possible at 35, but whatever. And we were translating sentences into first-order logic um, and translating arguments too. And they were just everyday sorts of things. Yeah. Um, And it just seemed to me that there was so much missing that I decided one day to go in and take to my students lines of poetry So I brought in some Galway Canal, uh, little sleep's head sprouting hair in the moonlight, one of my favorite poems, some Emily Dickinson. Said, well, let's translate these alongside everything else. And and then they saw how hard it was. And then I asked them what they thought was lost. And is what was lost important to human experience and important to reality? And so that was a sort of big moment for me when I did that. And then the next week, I was in a graduate seminar on Aristotle and this was right toward the end of that semester. And that next week, the final paper was due. And I wrote two papers for that <laughs> class. I wrote the regular paper that I would have written. Um, I think it was Terry Irwin on okay. something in Aristotle's Metaphysics. I think it was on Metaphysics Zeta, actually. And then I wrote a second paper called Taken Up by the Taken Up, Heidegger, Aristotle, and the Question of Being, which I knew. <laughs> would be basically like having scribbled on a paper yeah. with crayons and turning it in. Um, it would have been that received. And I took both of them with me to class that day, not knowing which one I would turn in. And then at the very last minute, I turned in the Heidegger paper. Yeah. And so that was sort of like, that was that Cartesian moment of, bam, everything's yes. about to change now. And everything did. And everything changed in terms of my status in the, the program and, and then my direction after that. So it yeah. was a continental direction. And, and you
0: worked with uh, James Hart there, right? I did, yeah. Um, and he, did he end up becoming your,
1: your main supervisor? He did. I had to have him as a co-director because he wasn't in philosophy. Right. Uh, so Paul Spade was gracious enough to agree to co-direct uh, in the philosophy department and basically let Jim Hart be the, the you know, director. And, and what did you write on? I wrote on Husserl and intersubjectivity. So, used especially the Cartesian meditations, the fifth mm-hmm. meditation, and also some of the not texts of uh, talking about apperceptive pairing and co-constitution of the other, that sort of stuff. Okay. Uh,
0: and you took that up in some of your ethical work on animals, right? That's right. Uh, can you talk a little bit about your your work on animals? Sure. Uh, I mean, just because this is a this is a conversation between two people who know each other, um, you know. I remember reading the Cartesian Meditations with you in Introduction to Phenomenology. That's right. But I also remember you talking about animals either in that class or in the senior capstone on the philosophy of Disney that you <laughs> taught. <laughs> I think um, it was that one actually. You're okay, right, yeah. And uh, you know, I became a vegetarian in part because of those discussions in class. Oh wait, really? Uh, yeah, but I told you the story. No. Yeah, so uh, know that all. that's awesome. You know, um we were uh, at my partner's parents' house, where, where uh, they have a small farm, they raise their own cows, and it was, it was Easter Sunday of uh, two thousand five, uh-huh. and I went out to hang out with the cows, and I was just looking into this big cow face. You always were talking about the the face of of the other, the face of the animal. I was looking in this cow's eyes, and I was just like, yeah, I'm not going to eat it anymore. That was my radical, wow. my radical That's great. Uh, uh, carno-phallocentrism, I suppose. <laughs> that's yeah, That's yeah. a great story. Um, yeah, but it was in part because of that, well, uh, th- those discussions in your class. I'm honored that I played a tiny role mm. in
1: that. That's fantastic. Well. Good for you. Cool.
0: But, yeah, tell us about your, your stuff on animals.
1: Oh, gee. Well, it was, um, I. so I became a vegetarian in 85, I think, or maybe February, January, February 86, maybe it was. And it was one of those things where, and it just keeps happening over and over in life. It just, it's, one, it's one of those things that shows you that this is a project. It's not a, something that you can finish. Because it, I had taken a class, believe it or not, it was on Eastern religion, which is not something I have much of a background in at all, over a January term. Uh-huh. Uh, and just learned about Hinduism and Buddhism, Jainism, and just thought, oh there are millions of people around the world (laughs) that are vegetarians and that think animals matter. And idiot that I was, it had never even occurred to me that you could be a vegetarian. I don't think that I'd ever met anybody who was a vegetarian. No one in my family was. No one from Lima I'd ever met was a vegetarian. (laughs) So it was just one of those things that it's such a huge ethical question, did not appear as a choice. It's not like I thought I'm gonna eat meat. It never even seemed like it was a choice and so what i mean by saying this is an ongoing project is just even after that big cartesian moment at northwestern of saying i will question everything i can, you see that's impossible yeah there's so many things and and it makes me think about what's going on right now in my life what horrible things am i doing right now (laughs) (laughs) that i don't even know that is a choice right so yeah yeah. that's the shame of existence the shame of existence indeed so i became a vegetarian then and um I went with a couple of friends to Pizza Hut and had a meat lover's pizza and said, this is the last meat I'll eat until I figure out whether or not it's good or bad because it just had not occurred to me. And uh, it took me so long to figure out, I never had a bite of meat Ah. since then, so we're coming up on 30 years almost. Oh wow! And so that was important to me just in terms of my own life, but it hadn't really occurred to me that I'd work on that at all until I was working on Husserl. And the more I worked through this question of apperceptive pairing and the constitution of the other, mm-hmm. it just seemed clear to me that the other wasn't species specific mm. in any important way. Mm. And as I started to try to make sense of this in terms of talking about how it works in terms of intersubjectivity and ethics, how there's a common good, we each have a perspective on the common good, and how all that works out, it just became suddenly obvious oh, non-human life has a perspective on the exact same good. And if we're really gonna talk about having an intersubjective community, it has to include all of these other subjectivities as well. And so I included a chapter in my dissertation mm-hmm. on, so what does this all mean for non-humans? And that was the first time I'd really written on animal stuff.
0: Uh, have you, I'm sure that you've come across some of the, the writing on agency of things. So not necessarily living things. Yeah. Um, wh- what's your take on that? Do you think that we have like an ethical obligation to, uh, you know, your your floating Mars uh, uh, trinket over here, or your desk, or um, what? W- do we have a, a hierarchy of uh, responsibility to those things, or mm-hmm. how do you see that?
1: Those are good questions. And I don't think that I have any perfect answers to them, but I'm pretty sure there wouldn't be a hierarchy, no matter what. So, as I've been trying to think about those sorts of things, that's one thing I've tried not to do, actually, is Mm -hmm. to say, well, if I am gonna start including rocks, let's just say, it's not gonna be, can I widen the circle so that maybe they can get included, and maybe I just don't have as much that I have to do for them, but I have, because that, I don't know, there's been a bad history, I think, of letting other people in the country club, yeah, way that we think of as ethics. And so I've been trying to think about how to undermine that and to, instead of accept the ethics we have now and see, can we include these things that we haven't, to say, what if we started all over with ethics in a way that includes these other mm. things to begin with? Yeah. then how would that change what we already assume we owe to other humans and to other animals? so. I chose rocks there as the example just because that's the thing I've been thinking the most about these yeah. days, an ethic for rocks. Yeah. And that's, I don't know, at least for, for my limited brain, thats really challenging. Yeah, um, Because it looks like the standard ways of talking about this don't work very well, at least my standard ways. So I'm not at all interested in whether something is rational or has language. It, they just seem interesting to get to know you as an individual, but not yeah. in terms of ethical. So the way that I've talked about ethics before is this phenomenological communitarianism that I've been trying to develop. And that does mean though that you're a subject, yeah. which means that there's some consciousness there, which means you have a perspective on the good. And so if that's the case, it's really hard to see how a rock is gonna figure in this simply because I don't see any good arguments for saying that rocks are conscious or rocks are alive, I know okay. there's some people saying yeah, there's interesting st- yeah, and stuff, yeah. I mean yeah some of it's interesting, but I don't know maybe it's just a, a a taste question, but it seems too close to me to the old country club thing again of saying mm-hmm. well we'll let it you know yeah. everything is alive, and the only reason you're doing this is because you're alive, so you think it's important right you know i' I'm, I'm interested in saying a rock is not alive and that's cool, that's great. Yeah. And I don't need to try to say that the rock is alive to try to get it into my ethics. Can I still then talk about some sort of moral comportment um, that, that I have with rocks? So that's what I've been thinking a lot about recently, one of the things at least. And I don't know. I, I think that I have a, I could say a couple things about it. Yeah. Again, I don't yes. know if it's interesting or not. It's absolutely know, interesting. All right. So you tell me what you think too, if you'll okay. interrupt me. So the first the first direction we might go is to say, what if I tried to do the old phenomenological move of apperceptive pairing intersubjectivity with the rock? So at first glance, it just looks like it fails. So apperceptive pairing in the standard case works mm-hmm. for Husserl when I try to Well, it it happens when two things arise together in consciousness Mm -hmm. uh, as a pair. That's the most standard thing. And when we talk about it in terms of others, it's when I'm having a burgeoning sense of myself and a burgeoning sense of the other. And it's not Cartesian in that I say, well, I know I'm a self and then I project that onto you because you look enough like me or you're acting enough like, it's Mm -hmm. not that. There's a little bit of that projection, but it's also projecting back. There are Mm -hmm. things about you that I recognize that I say, oh, I must be like that as well. I see you as a whole, I see you as an external thing, I see you as lots of lots of other things. And I come to apperceive that in myself, which are things that I can't directly perceive in myself so that you and I arise together and sense at the same time. So when I try to do that with a rock, I don't think it's necessarily that it fails, that you just can't pair with a rock, but that it, it works, but it works in weird ways. Okay. So. There is some rockiness to me. Clearly, I'm part rock. I need rocks to live. I'm constituted by rocks. Yeah, it's all true, but somewhat uninteresting. Right? Okay. Um, there are things that I can learn about myself from rocks. And this like starts to get slightly more interesting. So for instance, I can learn a little bit about what it's like not to be a conscious subject. And I can come to question what I thought of as myself as a conscious subject all along. Is it possible that there's some part of me that's like that as well? This might be a good path to getting us to move away from hmm. this radical egology of, of the, the liberal self mm-hmm. that we're stuck up in. Rocks might help us with that. Rocks are quiet, but their silence is not a listening silence which is usually the kind of silence that I have. So I can talk, like I'm doing now, probably too much of. No. Or I can listen. And when I'm quiet listening, I'm doing something very active. But a sil- the silence of a rock is very different. And hmm. so every once in a while, I try to practice that. Try to be a little bit more rock-like and try to have a silence that's not just a listening silence, but just a, a being silence. Hmm. And then, I think it gets even more interesting when you start thinking about the way in which rocks and humans can live in community and what they can give to each other. And so this is, this is my, the latest twist to this for me, that it seems to me that ethics today has been colonized by business. Mm. capitalism, neoliberalism, classic liberalism, but business, so much so that, you know the old joke is that business ethics is an oxymoron <laughs> and it, it's really, it's occurred to me these days that it's not an oxymoron, it's a redundancy. That ethics has been taken over so much by the language of business and the concepts of business. We talk about what we owe each other. Yeah. We talk about our debts, the debt to the other. We talk about paying attention, uh, to the face of the if you just look at all the language it's all in the accountant's ledger mm. about owing and paying and even something that seems radical like Derrida's conception of the gift is still within that that linguistic and metaphysic assumption that it's all about a kind of give and take where there's a balance being met. Right. So the reason that I worry about the gift is if you, I give you the gift, then the, the gift is not freely given because it demands that you receive it. It demands that you give some gift back. Otherwise, you're just a jerk later. We start the cycle of madness that throws logos into a spin, etc. But if you think about how we live with rocks, well, there are very important things that rocks are giving us. Mm. But they actually don't want anything back. There's no debt that we have to rocks. They're not interested in seeing me pay up to make good on what I owe them for all the great things that they're doing for me. And of course, in some in some areas of life, that could be a recipe for oppression and disaster with it. But with rocks, I'm not hurting them by not making good on it. So this gets me thinking, is this maybe not a better way of ethically being? Hmm. Are they not showing us that it's possible to be with and to offer up to give without any kind of debt whatsoever, without any expectation of debt? And then as I start thinking about that, here's the jump then. It seems to me that's actually the best way we live in community. So I think about my wife again and our day-to-day life. So she, she does the, the vacuuming at home on days when I'm at school because I'm so deathly allergic to dust. And I drive her around to classes or to dance practice or whatever because she doesn't wanna learn how to drive and I'm happy to do that. I do the cooking, she folds the laundry. There's this give and take that is there in pretty much every intimate relationship like that. And there's no exchange going on, it's certainly not ge- economic. If we started paying each other for these tests, that's the end <laughs> of the relationship, right? yes. it's over there. But it's also not gift, it's not a gift economy, right? because if she did this, you know, I gave you this gift of dusting today, then it's, it starts to become, oh, so now I've, what do I get back? And did I give enough? And mm-hmm. what do I have to do? It's not that at all. There's no real expectation of return because there's a a kind of pre-assumption that's already built into it. We do these things for each other simply because that's what it means to be together. Hmm. And so without the ledger sheet, without the question of debt, we do these things and then these things are the most ethical things that you do all day. when you teach ethics in, in the academy, you teach abortion, euthanasia, capital punishment. Yeah. Like yeah. ethics is something that happens every once in a blue moon and right. you have to plot out of it. But that's not what ethics is about. This is about everything you're doing every single day with every person you're interacting with. Yeah. And so the most normal things, these are the most ethical decisions that I'm making all the time. And all of this is going on without the ledger sheet, without right. standard ethics of being indebted to somebody, what do I owe, Danielle, etc. That's what rocks are doing. Hmm. So maybe in some sense, rocks are the finest ethical creatures that there are. The example par excellence oh of ethical beings. Nice. So um,
0: some of that reminds me a little bit of, of uh, the, the mystical tradition in, in Christian mm-hmm. theology. Um, you know, Meister Eckhart doing things right, without right. A y, um, and But also the way that uh, St. Francis turns everything into a creature. He really emphasizes this, uh, this creatural... Uh, creatural nature of everything including death so it's sister death it's not it's right. not uh, it's not you know big scary death it's sister death it's a creature death's a creature uh, and so you you have to praise death as one of these wonderful created things um, that's so
1: that's, fascinating. that's interesting. yeah and then what here's the interest so tell me what you think of this so what happens if we do that same sort of thing but instead of turning things into creatures we turn all the creatures into things. Hmm. And, and so instead of saying, I'm going to count you as this being and you know, use personal pronouns like his or her right. or a rock, what if we just started thinking, no, rocks are the example, that everything yeah. should be turned into non-subject yeah. sorts of things? Yeah, this is uh,
0: kind of radicalizing Leopold's Think Like a Mountain. Cause radical. Radical. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, okay, switch, switch, uh, switch tracks a little bit here. Th- that's really great. But I want us to now think about the rock in the hands of a protester, tossing it at, mm. at the police. <coughs> right. you, you've done you've done some political work in the past. Um, can we talk a little bit about that? Sure. That right? So you've you've been uh, an observer during some of the Venezuelan elections in the past. Is that right? Yep. Okay. So uh, and you're you're kind of a a supporter of, of Chavez. That's right. I mean, uh, yeah. you know for sure. Um, can you can you talk about how that happened, or uh, talk a little bit about why you were attracted to uh, Chavez and and his vision of socialism?
1: Yeah. So always interested in Latin American politics, especially since the 80s, then especially as I got my Peace Studies degree. um, We just messed up so much stuff down there that it seemed like it was a a responsibility even to to know about that. Did you ever do the protest
0: at the uh, School of Americas with some of the Quakers?
1: No, no, I had people, friends who did that, and Yeah. yeah, yeah, I did other ones, but yeah, yeah, exactly. My stepbrother used to be a guard there. <laughs> yeah. hey, he may have punched somebody that I knew. He may have. <laughs> <our sleep>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. These are the connections that really yeah. make <laughs> life important. Yeah, yeah. All right. So. Um, so, yeah. So in 92, I was in Venezuela. Uh, that's, it was right uh, at the time that Chavez was doing the coup. It was just uh-huh. uh, insane there. There were tanks parked in the grocery down the street where I was going uh, and at this point, I didn't know much about Venezuela. I knew a lot more about Nicaragua yeah. <laughs> and uh, El Salvador, but uh, it just seemed scary to me. I was a little timid Midwestern forest creature, and, <laughs> and there was like violence going on. Yeah. Um, but in the time that he was in prison, until the time he came out in 98, and in 98, I was there on a Fulbright for a year, and I was teaching in the l- School of Law at uh, Universidad de Zulia in Maracaibo. Yeah. And, um, during that time, he was running for president. Hmm. And that's really when I learned more about him, learned more about what had been going on. He had a country that you had 80 some percent, in between 85 and 88% that was below the poverty line hmm. before Chavez came to power, which yeah. is just terrible for any place. Yeah. But when you think about Venezuela, so rich with oil, just like, beyond disgusting how yeah. terrible that is. And they had a democracy quote-unquote, the oldest in Latin America, which basically amounted to two parties passing power back and forth to each other. Sounds familiar. Yeah, how about that? Yeah. Um, uh, so the oligarchs have been in charge. The, the people who left the presidency ended up being the richest people in the, in the world because they embezzled so much. Wow. They gave everything away to European and American oil companies because they made money from it, and the people were suffering. So Chavez came uh, running for president and said he would do with the ballot what he tried to do with the bullet Mm -hmm. and this is the point where i just really came to support him in any way that i possibly could because it just seemed like the right thing and then in that year the first year or two that he was president the change was massive it was i i think i'm very cynical about politics i try hard not to be but it's you know it's it's difficult not to be but those two years just they really gave me a lot of hope because If you had a country that was so messed up and in two years it could be turned around the way that it was, you had, well, now the poverty is below 40%. It's been more than cut in half in this time. But within a a couple of years, you had a huge number of people that couldn't read or write. It was just embarrassing, the statistic for illiteracy. And now they're at 100% literacy, 99, whatever it's gonna be. 100%, I mean, that's incredible that somebody could do that. And he did it just by saying, this is an insurmountable problem and we're gonna surmount it. Yeah. Sent out people to teach people to read, so door to door, <laughs> <laughs> knock on yeah, door, yeah. and then gave everybody the people's library. was ah. I mean, yeah. a little cardboard carton box and it had these volumes like 10 or 12 volumes inside and it had stuff in science, stuff in politics, it had poetry, literature, all sorts of things to get you started along the way. Did he put Don Quixote in there, by any chance? I don't know, Don Quixote may have been, it was it's lots and lots of Latin American and Spanish uh, Marcos
0: stuff. is Marcos' uh, subcommandant, favorite book. Of, of, of course.
1: Yeah. Chavez used to, to quote um, that a lot, too. Yeah. I know um, Simon Bolivar, of course, because yeah, the Bolivarian yeah, Revolution yeah. was in there. I think Gabriel Garcia Marquez, there yeah, was a short yeah. story by him in there. So it was not the literature of the oppressor, yeah. right? Yeah. And anybody who went through the program got this for free. And you got to take it home, oh, these, these beautiful books. And I remember there was a woman, and she was, she was, must have been pushing 90, uh, who was in the program. And the opposition got a hold of this, because they said, look at what he's doing, wasting money on trying to get this person. <sighs> imagine, how tone deaf were they? Yeah. <laughs> Um, and it just backfired because, of course, that woman then was brought to Miraflores to the White House there she was made a, a hero of the revolution. And darned if she didn't learn how to read and then yeah. wrote the, the president a thank you note. And she became the poster child at 90 years old for it. Right. And there's just a great thing. You had kids who had never seen a doctor before, who were going to the doctor all the time. Because he brought in doctors, not just not just some sort of Obamacare thing. Right? Yeah. He brought in doctors from Cuba, giving them oil money. The doctors come in and they live in the neighborhood. You have a doctor every few blocks and they build a house for them, usually a round house. And the doctor lives on the second floor and has a practice on the first, which means that every single day you bump into the doctor or the doctor's family. You come to know that doctor is not just your doctor, but also, his wife or her husband does this other thing in the community and their kid goes to school with my kid. And you create this web of interrelations such that people are going to the doctor all the time and you have infant mortality rate just dropping off the map. Yeah. You have people getting inoculations never in had it. You get people treated for everyday sorts of things that they were just suffering with before. It was an amazing turnaround and still is in, in many ways, even after his death.
0: I, I've been a little bit disturbed um, You know, we kind of live in an age where on Facebook and Twitter and other social media sites, people just post photos of unrest somewhere. And while I kind of agree with the statement, uh, I think it's from Camus, that you should never side with the executioner, Mm -hmm. um, a lot of times I think these are very naive, you know. So, like, the Ukraine mess. Like, uh, I don't know enough about Ukraine to really evaluate what's happening there, but it's clear there's some really troubling aspects of the... the, uh, the people who, uh, the Euro maiden, you know, there's some really, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, Nazi flags and all this sort of stuff. Um, but the same thing's been happening with some of the protests now in Venezuela, where it's, it's mostly students, and, and it looks like a kind of scene from Occupy, and so people who don't know a lot about Venezuela are like, well, I'm with them, like clearly the government's probably bad.
1: Uh, what's your take on that? Uh, you nailed it there. It's, it's um, if I knew nothing about Venezuela, I yeah. would say, yeah, yeah, students protesting. A very a white-looking looking students. There's nice students with there's iPhones. Yeah. And where are the protests taking place? In the nice neighborhoods. No. They're backing up traffic in, it's, it's like our equivalent of gated communities. If you just had a protest there and stopped all the Mercedes from entering the gated community and then took a photo of it, it would look like you're accomplishing something. Yeah. Um, it is a bourgeois protest. And there's just no getting around that. When you look at the, the masses, you look at the people they are still behind the Bolivarian government. And mm. no amount of, of that this sort of anonymous posting and especially some of the photos that have come out in the last month or so have been shown to be fake too. Yeah. They've yeah. been actually photoshopped from other countries, of yeah. people being it's just as yeah. part of the problem with, with the, the online yeah. version of the revolution, there's no context and it makes you feel as if you're connected and you're not and We're you're safe in California yeah, exactly. you like the picture it's my
0: whole yeah, yeah right I liked it so I did yeah. my part yeah um, so there wa- there was some some uh, some I, I guess I'm going to use the term dissatisfaction towards the end of uh, Chavez's presidency before he, he passed away uh, what do you think that's resulting from. I know he's up against a lot. He was up against a lot of um, power uh, that wanted to turn the tide on, on his reforms and on yeah. the revolution. Um, and he, he would hold votes and uh, he would follow the will of the people. And sometimes the will of the people seemed to be against uh, what he thought was the right direction. That's true. Um, But what do you think? Sli- what do you think was the real underlying cause
1: of some of this, this dissatisfaction or like claims of corruption and, and that sort of thing? Right. You know, Before that, that question, just to say the will of the people, one of the reasons that he did that is not just because of the ideology of the Bolivarian Revolution, but in the new constitution, the people are one of the branches of the government. Wow, <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, so it, um, democracy's messy. Yes. It's, it's hard to do it. <laughs> in some ways, um, being a dictator gets things a, a lot easier. Uh, to, to have the things you want to do done. That being said, um, and I'm certainly not somebody who would say Chavez was a saint and did everything perfectly. I think there are things that, that could have been different, but the biggest problems are financial problems and they're financial problems that are mostly affecting the middle class and the rich. And the middle class and the rich are almost the same uh, in mm-hmm. Venezuela. And those were problems that are created by them. They did on purpose. They did in the very early days of Chavez's administration when they did what they called a strike, which is basically just a wa- work stoppage in order to try to shut down the government. Hmm. And that is the first thing that just caused the believer to go spiraling out of control and okay. to cause a lot of these other financial problems that still, 10 years later, um, the, co- the country and the economy are trying to recover from. So. In many ways, the people that are complaining about these problems have created these exact problems. And if the actual things that the Bolivarian Revolution had tried to put in place had been put in place, I don't think that you'd have them nearly to the extent that you do today. Again, that being said, there are problems today, especially post-Chavez, where it just looks like some of that momentum has been lost. And you worry about the future, the revolution.
0: Well, we we don't have too much time left. I just want to return to one thing you said at the very beginning. You said uh, you've always been interested in the big questions. You thought for a while physics would answer that. Then you thought maybe philosophy would, and you don't think those do anymore. What do you look now to when you think about
1: these big questions? I don't know. Uh, So that's why I'm sort of looking at every angle possible, I guess, would be the answer. So I said one of the things I'm working on now is rocks. Yeah. The other big thing is the something-from-nothing question that's just, since I was like seven years old, that's been eating away at me. Why is there something rather than nothing? And so that's I decided really to try to focus attention on that for the last year or so. And so it's not to say physics is not going to give an answer, so I'm trying to read everything I can on that and philosophy, but art, um, listen to music to see if that inspires something. So at this point, I think it's a question of, Objective truth is actually intersubjective truth, and and I believe that firmly. There's no view from nowhere. Objectivity really just means intersubjectivity, radical intersubjectivity, but it also seems to me that the hope for achieving objective truth has to be not just intersubjective, getting a lot of people together, but a lot of disciplines and a lot of different ways of thinking. So that's why also here at the Humanities Center, when we have a topic that we're talking about, Like we had the topic, nothing. That was the very first thing that I did at the beginning of the year. I said, well, we want to understand what is nothing. Uh, And so I brought in a physicist, a mathematician, someone from religious studies, uh, an artist to talk about a blank canvas, somebody to talk about the silence in John Cage's 4 minutes, 33 seconds, every possible way in which nothing can show itself. Mm -hmm. And maybe if we all get together and we think about it from all these different angles, maybe something will inspire and maybe we'll get somewhere with it.
0: Thank you.